We've uh, been in Micah for a couple of Lord's Days now. We are going to begin reading at verse 9 of Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4, verse 9, reading through chapter 5, verse 5. Micah 4, 9. One of the interesting things as uh, I've been going through the book of Micah is that oftentimes when the prophets come with a message from the Lord and, and you read through it in, in the scriptures, what you find is that oftentimes they come with a word of judgment. And that might take up two, three, four, or in uh, the, the major prophets even longer, chapters. And then there is the section of God's promise. And so it's like divided into those two sections. First the judgment and then the promise. The interesting thing about the book of Micah is that it rises and falls. Micah will begin with a word of judgment, but he ends, as it were, upon a, a mountaintop. But then we dip again into a word of judgment and condemnation, only to be brought again to glorious message of hope that God has given. And again, judgment, and again, hope. And as I was reflecting upon that, thinking about that, I, I wondered if, if there was more to the reason why it's Micah who is chosen for this. If it is the idea of Micah, of Morasheth, Gath, that as he would make his way to Jerusalem, would indeed be doing that exact thing. You would be going to the top of a hill, down again, up and down. And that almost the path of Micah to Jerusalem to proclaim the word of the Lord is actually pictured in the way in which the book is structured. I don't know if that's true, but it would certainly fit that which happened and that which took place. So we continue the vision that the Lord gave to Micah. Chapter 4, verse 9. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Read, groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let us, our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. There he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, sieged is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, 
whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee, Lord, for this opportunity to gather in thy house on this thy Sabbath day, Lord. We thank thee, Lord, for this holy word that thou hast placed in our hands. We pray that thou will guide us through this portion of your word. Be with Pastor Bob and give him the words to say through thy help of thy Holy Spirit. We pray that we can apply these words into our lives so that we may gather with others and spread this word and the news. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I want to look at two things from what we have before us, kind of thinking of that valley and mountain uh, illustration in your, your mind's eye as well. First of all, the contrast that is given to us here in chapter 4, and then secondly, as we get into chapter 5, the coming leader. Once again, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Hebrew is not divided into all of these chapters and verses and so on. And uh, as I mentioned then, I'll mention it now, uh, that actually most commentators believe that the two sections that I've just read actually do go together. And uh, it would appear that in the Hebrew they are much more joined then we would look at it. We would draw the distinction before uh, chapter 5, even though verse 1 of chapter 5 clearly belongs with what has just come before. So don't always stop your Bible reading just because there's a chapter break. Sometimes it's best in your devotional reading or to, to finish the thought. Where does this thought end? Not where does the chapter end? Not where does the verse end, because even as you saw when I read uh, that fifth verse, the thought clearly ends where I end it, not where the verse ends. So keep that in mind when you're reading, because else you're going to pick up Scripture and go, now why this? I don't, I don't get where verse 1 of chapter 5 has to do with the rest. Well, it doesn't. It goes back into chapter 4. So always keep that in mind before you. First of all, then, the contrast that is given. And I have to go back to last Lord's Day. We have to remind ourselves of the future glory that Micah gave to us in those first eight verses. In that fir those first eight verses, he pictured for us that beautiful mountain of the Lord... Whereas Jerusalem had been this plowed field, te the temple just a, a piece of rubble, then he turns our attention to the mountain of the Lord. And I reminded you of that passage from Daniel of the picture of the rock that is cut out without human hands that comes and destroys all the empires of the world and sets up a glorious mountain. This is the kingdom of Christ. This is the church of Jesus Christ, pictured for us in all of its glory, in all of its majesty, 
in eternity. That's where he ended, verse 8. But now when we turn to chapter, the verse 9 of this chapter, we read again of humiliation. Yes, this is coming. This is in the future. But in the immediate future, Judah, you have some humiliation coming. And that's always a good reminder to us. That is the way that God's word is laid out. It lays out for us the, the glory of that which shall be ours as believers in Jesus Christ. But even as the gospels and even as the epistles remind us, there is the present sufferings. But the present sufferings, as Paul says in Romans 8, are in no way able to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. So yes, there is going to be this mountain of the Lord. Yes, there is this glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ. But before you get there, Judah, you're going to be humiliated. Humiliated in the sense of being brought low. Brought down. From all of your pride, from all of your arrogance. Self-pride, self-arrogance. Looking at oneself for their salvation rather than to the Lord. So the first thing that he encounters them with is the loss of their leader. Hence Psalm 146. Do not look to princes. See, the people of Judah were looking to their king and they were putting all their hope and all their confidence in their king. Oh, our king will rally against us. Our king will bring us. Our king will save us. Our king will rally the troop and these enemies that are coming against us. Our hope is in this man. Our hope is in this person. He will deliver us. He'll be the answer to our problems and to our woes. Actually, when you, when you read it and, and study the language in, in the Hebrew, there is much sarcasm coming out of his voice. Reminded of a story of a pastor uh, that, that was included in one of the commentaries. The pastor uh, had been witnessing to a man over and over and over again. It was a neighbor, uh, someone who lived close to the church. And the man constantly refused, constantly refused to have anything to do with the message of the gospel. Over and over and over again, the pastor would stop in over the course of, a, of uh, his ministry and, and try to have a conversation. And the man would always say, if we're going to talk about issues of salvation, I want nothing to do with it. Finally, the pastor heard that the man had taken ill and it was going to be an illness that was going to take his life. So he knocked on the door and the man happened to belong to a, a lodge and uh, the masons that were there were keeping watch over him. And the pastor asked uh, the man who was there uh, at the door if, if uh, he could come in and visit with this man for just a few moments. And the man allowed him to come in, and the pastor took a chair. And he sat it right next to the man. And he just sat down and just looked at the man and didn't say a word. The man turned to him and looked at him, and he said, So have you nothing to say? The pastor said, No, no. The man said, Well, then why are you here? And the pastor said, I just wanted to see what it looks like to see a man die without Christ. If you think about that, that those are, it's kind of sarcastic. 
that's sort of cold. But it was at that moment that the man broke down, wept, said, Pastor, I want to hear the message of the gospel once again. After hearing that message again, he said, Pastor, what must I do to be saved? Before he died, he told the man who was there as his fellow mason, you may leave, I no longer need your services, called his family in and gave his testimony. See, sometimes we think people can only be one with heart, with warm fuzzies. Sometimes it's the coldness of the gospel and the reality. What's it like to watch a man die without Christ? And suddenly all the stuff of life that he had put his hope in became small. See, that's what Micah is doing here. Now why do you cry aloud? Well, what's the big problem here? Is there no king in you? Is there no, well, you put your hope and trust in these princes. Where are they now? What is happening? Has your consular perished? That pain seizes upon you like a woman in labor. There is a, a sarcasm there, a coldness. It's not a compassionate thing he's actually uttering, but in reality it is. In reality, what, what Micah is seeking to do is to, to bring them back to Psalm 146. Put not your trust in princes. People of Judah are going to be humiliated because they are going to lose the one thing that they are hoping is going to save them from the oppression of the Assyrians. There is going to be the pain of leaving, verse 10. Writhe and groan. You're going to leave the city. You're going to go into the open country. And then you're going to end up in Babylon. You're going to end up in captivity. This is what is going to happen to you. That's humiliation. That's loss. It's loss of the city. It's loss of, of any sense of human pride. As we know, when Zedekiah was actually taken to Babylon, he's taken there with a hook in his nose. Blind. Because the last thing he saw was the Babylonians killing his sons. The Babylonians wanted him to see nothing else but to have that be the last impression of his life. And so they put out his eyes, put a hook in his nose, led him all the way to Babylon. Humiliation. The nations are going to assemble together. Let her be defiled. Let our eyes gaze upon Zion. We learn that, that when the Israelites are actually finally escorted, or when the people of Judah are actually escorted out of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, that the Edomites are standing on the hills laughing. These cousins of theirs are, are laughing at them, mocking them. Nations are assembled. Nobody knows the plans of the Lord. What was going to happen was this. The Assyrians were going to come first, and they were going to lay siege against Jerusalem. This is going to take place during the reign of King Hezekiah. 
Hezekiah doesn't have a clue as to what to do. He is given the instruction to pray to the Lord. Hezekiah prays to the Lord, and during that night, the angel of the Lord, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, comes, the angel of the Lord, and slays 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Now, we know that the Assyrians did not only have soldiers from Assyria, but they had assembled nations. They hired out mercenaries from all sorts of other countries who had come to lay siege against Jerusalem. The angel of the Lord in one night kills 185,000. These nations that come to humiliate and to taunt do not know the plans of the Lord. You say, well, how is that a humiliation? Well, it's a reminder to them that their deliverance did not come from themselves. That they had to look to the Lord. They had to humble themselves. That's what Hezekiah needed to do. You need to humble yourself, Hezekiah. You need to submit to the Lord. And when Hezekiah submits to the Lord, the Lord hears his cry and delivers him. But the Babylonians are still coming. Therefore you come, you see, to verse 1 of chapter 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Who is that? That's the Babylonians. The Babylonians are going to come. And they're going to lay siege against Jerusalem. And they will strike the judge of Israel. The king of Israel, Zedekiah, on the cheek. You see, that's it. Judah is now gone. There is no more Judah. There is no more Jerusalem. There is no more temple. It is all destroyed. It is all laid waste. Anything that these people might have put their hope in. Because you read through the book of Jeremiah and Isaiah... You hear the people saying, oh, the temple, the temple, that will save us. Well, now that's a pile of rocks. Oh, the king, the king will save us. Well, he's got a hook in his nose with no eye. There is nothing left to save them. Nothing that they had put their hope and trust in. It's a reminder to us at this point that for you and I as well. There is nothing in life that can save us except the Lord our God. He and He alone. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot wish ourselves into salvation. We cannot just, oh, someday I'll just walk the aisle. Someday I'll make the decision. It doesn't happen that way. Only the Lord can save. And that's, you see, where it picks up now in chapter, in verse 2 of chapter 5. We have gone down in the valley. We have been brought low. We have been humiliated. The people of Judah have nothing left. And then comes that glorious word, but, but, 
This is where you are. But now God is going to act on your behalf. But now a righteousness from God has appeared. He is doing, Micah is doing the same thing Paul does in chapter 3 of the book of Romans. You're all dead in your trespasses and sin. There is no one who does good. No one. We're all doomed. But now a righteousness from God has appeared. And the same righteousness of God that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 3 is the same as that which we have here in Micah chapter 5 too. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, but you, out of you is going to come forth the leader. And so secondly this morning, let's look at that coming leader that is going to emerge. He is going to come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Two things are mentioned to us here. One, that Bethlehem Ephrathah is in Judah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Why is it mentioned in that way? One, because there is another Bethlehem that is located in the north in Israel. The Lord wants it to be clearly understood which Bethlehem it is that we are speaking of. We are speaking of the Bethlehem of Judah, the one of which he has prophesied multiple times that a leader shall come forth. That which Jacob already, when he blessed the tribes, already had given that blessing. A star, a scepter shall arise out of Judah. But he also reminds us that it's Bethlehem Ephrathah. Because Ephrathah is the reminder, this is where Rachel died. This is the place of sorrow, that your place of deliverance, that your hope of deliverance is going to be in the place of sorrow. God is already showing forth the gospel in simply telling the people of Judah, in telling you and I, that the deliverer is going to come out of Bethlehem, your provisions, your blessings, your house of bread, your abundance is going to come out of the place of suffering. A place that is noted for being too little. Too little. A place that is small. A place that is looked down on. A place that is unknown. A place that isn't even mentioned. In the book of Joshua is one of the cities that they captured. It just wasn't even worthwhile mentioning. He had no stately form. There's nothing about his appearance that would draw us to him. God is already telling us about how his son is going to come into this world. To be our deliverer through the way of suffering. But he's not going to be some great heralded king. He's not going to be somebody who has their name on the who's who list. He's going to be born in a town nobody even cares about. He is going to be despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. 
Secondly, Micah tells us that this one, this ruler who is going to come out of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, is also going to be a ruler. A ruler shall come forth one for me who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. You know how many times in life I have probably read this text? You know how many times I've probably preached on this text? And you know there are two words in this text that oftentimes I have just glanced over. Who is the ruler for? From you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel. The whole purpose of Christ's coming is not us. Imagine that. We're not the focus here. We're not what it's all about. It's not all about me. It's not all about you. It's not all about us. It's all about the Lord. Christ comes to rule for me, for the Lord. The one who is Yahweh, the one who is the covenant God, the one coming to Bethlehem Ephrathah is coming to fulfill my purpose, my plan. See, it's all about the Lord. Because we're not looking. Mankind isn't looking. That man on his deathbed throughout his whole life wasn't looking. The Philippian jailer wasn't looking. Lydia wasn't looking. Paul, Saul wasn't looking. Jesus Christ comes so that God's purpose might be fulfilled. A ruler for me. One who will do exactly, perfectly as I would desire the covenant to be fulfilled. Secondly, as you think about that, it's not only that his arrival is for me, that is for the Lord, but that arrival is from of old. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That's the Old Testament way, it's the prophet's way of speaking of eternity past. In other words, the one who is coming is not, this is not his first existence, as it were. The one who is coming has always existed. He has existed from old. Once again, a beautiful passage that reminds us of the divinity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That Jesus didn't just begin in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. That isn't where he starts. But Christ has an eternal existence because he is the divine son of God reminding ourselves of the Bray's words in the Velgic confession that we've studied a few weeks ago his arrival is for the Lord from of old but not yet not yet see even here okay so we're in captivity so the leader's coming right 
We're in captivity. Zedekiah's gone. It's got to be immediate, right? It's going to happen soon. It's going to happen right away. Micah says no. No. Verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Not yet. Not yet. Reminded of that beautiful passage again in the book of Galatians. In the fullness of time, Christ came. In the fullness of time, when it's God's plan, according to God's timing, according to God's purposes, Christ comes. So rather than the people going, wow, what's so bad about going out in captivity? It's going to last a day and then we have deliverance, right? Because you've just said this great deliverer is coming. Micah's saying, no, no. No, it's not right away. This time of humiliation is going to last for a long period of time. Some would say, well, doesn't it end after the 70 years? Not really. Because when the 70 years of Babylonian captivity is over and they come back, those of you who have been in Wednesday night Bible study knows what happens. They rebuild. But the people who are old enough to remember that which stood in Jerusalem before are weeping. Because it doesn't look like the old temple. It has none of its beauty. It has none of its elegance. They're going to be run over by the Greeks. They're going to be run over by the Romans. Not yet. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Exactly as Micah has prophesied. And what shall he be? What is going to be his work? Look with me at verse 4. Two things. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. That is what the coming ruler is going to do. That is what the one coming from Bethlehem Ephrathah. This is what the Son of God comes to do. This is what Jesus Christ is. He is born to stand. And he is born to shepherd. First of all, the understanding of what's going on here with he will stand. In some ways, we might look at it and be able to, to go back into the context because we're dealing with, with a military aspect of this. Jerusalem is rising and falling. There are armies coming against it. But these leaders keep falling and falling and falling. They can't withstand the opposition. But Jesus Christ will. He shall stand against all the opposition so that we sing not even the gates of hell can prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Satan cannot prevail against Christ. He shall stand. But that idea of standing not only has that military aspect of it, of being able to withstand any opposition, it also means constantly at work and constantly guarded. He's not a lazy shepherd. He is alert to what is going on. He is alert to what is happening. 
He will guard. He will persevere. He is standing, working, serving. And once again, tonight, as we come back to the Belgic Confession, we see him as that faithful high priest, standing before the Lord as that high priest. And he shall stand. And nothing will cause him to ever have to fall. Because he stands in the strength and power and majesty of the Lord. When Stephen is being martyred and the stones are being hurled at him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But why are they martyring him? Why are they throwing stones at him? Because he said, I see the Lord standing, standing. See Jesus standing, working, laboring. He will stand and he will shepherd. He will feed, care for, provide for the sheep. Christ comes as our great ruler, serving the purposes of the Lord. Yahweh, fulfilling all the demands of the covenant, but then pouring out all the blessings of the covenant upon us as his church. And those blessings of the covenant are these. One, he will rule constantly, faithfully. Nothing can withstand against him. And he will shepherd. Because he loves us. So much he will even lay down his life for us, his sheep. And he's able to do so. Because all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. We have seen his glory. Glory of the one and only, writes John. Jesus can fulfill his work of standing and shepherding us as his people. And my friends, no matter what life throws at you, no matter what curveballs come your direction, Jesus Christ never stops standing and shepherding you as his people. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And he's able to do so because he does it in the power and in the strength of the Lord. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock, verse 4, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And what are the two blessings? And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Here are the two results. Security. Because of his greatness. Peace. Because of him. Are you living 
in that peace and security? I don't mean in the sense of, well, yeah, I have to ask that on several different layers. Perhaps in terms of your salvation. Are you resting in the peace and security of the ruler who comes forth from Bethlehem Ephrathah? Is your hope for salvation found in him alone? Or are you like that man on that bed who's looking to his fellow masons, who's looking to his fellow friends, who's looking to his associations here upon earth for his salvation? He's hoping he has done enough good things to earn God's good favor while having rejected all of his life Jesus Christ. The peace and security that is mentioned here in verses 4 and 5 is only for those who are in Christ. But even as a Christian, are you worried about earthly things? Overly worried, I mean. Overly concerned? Are you anxious over what the Lord has already promised to provide? Are we angry over the trivial matters of life that have no eternal consequences? Have you pushed the limits of the sheepfold? Are you wandering? Then hear the voice this morning of the shepherd. Come unto me. All you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. 